17, it's close enough. <laughs> Very cool. So uh, now we'll get into the Word. If you've been with us for the last five weeks, we've been going on a journey called uh, Driven by Eternity, and you see it up there on the screen. It's a book written by John Bevere. Uh, he wrote it about 11 years ago, and then he came out with a 10-year anniversary edition where he'd made some tweaks based upon what he'd learned from the Lord in that time. And um, I, I reread this book uh, at the start of the year, and because I knew the Lord had drawn me to this message uh, and I knew that it was a message for our church. So instead of trying to rewrite a message that is current and and very well put together, we decided as a church that we we're going to do it as a series um, as the book is written out. So uh, we condensed 14 chapters basically into six weeks um, because uh, and, and we watched some videos and drew from those. But ultimately, um, we've just followed the six sessions that needed to be done. So today... Um, is our last of this series. So if you get something out of this today, let me encourage you, you can go online, uh, lifesourcechurch.org.au, and you can listen to the other messages, and um, or you can just go and buy the book and have a read as well, because um, there are some things in there that we haven't touched. Um, but the ultimate thing around this was um, what we wanted to, to, to learn out of this series was that we wanted to make our life count today and forever. It's not enough to just be um, to be saved and sitting in a pew. It's definitely not enough just to be saved and not attending church. Um, God's put us together in a kingdom for the for a purpose. He's brought us together. He's gifted us as a church. He's gifted us as His church globally to win the lost. And and that so by being driven by eternity, it is about the message of the gospel going out through us as His members of His body. So making your life count today and forever. So over the past five weeks, just to give you a real quick wrap, we've looked at topics around the, the eternal. We've looked at the eternal home of the dead, and that's talking about what happens when someone um, meets the judgment of Christ and they don't believe in him. Um, we, we've looked at the foundation, who is Jesus, and that was a really good week to be able to unpack that. Then we looked at the judgment seat of Christ, that us as believers will stand before Jesus and we will be judged for what we were called to do. Not for what we did, but for what we are called to do, which means that we've got to put our gifts into the kingdom and see them multiplied. And we'll touch on that a little bit more today. And then um, last week, we looked at building God's custom home, that God's got a vision and his vision is Zion. And we make uh, we are like the subcontractors with Jesus and that we get the opportunity to build his custom home. That's what we talked about last week. And how we build that home is by putting what God's called us to do into practice. Because the church, um, I said this last week, you're put into uh, the church, which is a, a building or a body is the context that Paul uses as well. And in those, you're either living stones, which means that you're alive and to do something for God, or you're a vital member. And those uh, members that are, that are hidden are the ones ultimately that are called to do more. Those who are the mouthpiece in a sense, you know, it's a different kind of thing. So we shouldn't look at just the pulpit as the only way to do Christian ministry, but every one of us are called to do something for the kingdom of God. Amen? And what we're called to do is what we'll be accountable for. Amen? All right, so that's just a really quick wrap of where we are. So today, if this is going to put it on green... Yes, here we go. So today we are 
looking at this sense. And everyone say with me, I'm going to live a Christ-filled life to the fullest now so I can live an even fuller life then. So the idea is about driven by eternity. It's about taking your focus off of your comfort in this world and actually seeing that we're called not to live comfortably, but called to live for the gospel. And and it's this thought that causes people in war-torn countries to continue to serve God because they're not living for their comfort. They're living for what God's called them to do for an eternal purpose. And we in the West, we kind of get comfortable, don't we? We like it that the seats are nice and comfy. We like it that it's warm in church, even without heaters. We like all those pretty things that are comfortable. But we're not called to comfort. We're called to be a part of the army of God. All right, so I'm going to live a Christ-filled life to the fullest so, so, so that I can live even fuller life then. And there were three things that that we hope have come out from our newsletter last month. You might have picked these up, um, that we wanted you to know these things. So the first thing we wanted you to know was that eternity arrests the attention of all mankind. Every human being will be judged by a righteous and holy God. So eternity must arrest us. And if we can get into conversations around eternity, we then can get into conversations around Jesus. What we want you to do as a church, we want us to make wise choices to build for eternity in the now. Because when you stand before Jesus, that'll be too late. And many, many within the church, whether they're in attending a local church or even outside of a local church, there are many who think they're in the church that think they're going to a beautiful paradise who will suffer loss. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 9, doesn't he? And we, we want to be set up now. And we found out that this was an elementary teaching, that we should already know this and then moving on. And then lastly, what do we want you to feel? Well, obviously, we want you to feel that you're important. But it's not for the importance of yourself. We want you to feel that you're important to the kingdom because God has called you into it. But ultimately, we want you to feel empowered to make a difference here and now that will have an everlasting eternal effect. And I know that that's my heart, and I know that with many of you coming to talk to me about this, have had the same stirring in your heart. So today we're going to look at this whole context of multiplication and personal influence. And our messages have been a little bit long because of we're trying to get so much in. So just bear with us as we open this up today. Um, but, but ultimately, there's a few things in here we want to understand. But multiplication and personal influence. How about we pray? Just put your hands out like you want to receive something from God this morning. Father God, we come to you with open minds and soft hearts this morning. We ask, Lord God, that you would speak directly to our heart. That your word would pierce and bring a transformation in the way we think. So Lord, renew us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So two weeks ago and last week, we looked at this sense of the believer's judgment. And uh, we, we looked at this First Corinthians 3 and verse 9 and the context of that. But there were two things in that that we wanted to understand. The first was that our involvement in building the kingdom, 
how we apply our gifts, how we apply our talents in the building of God's custom home. The second one was this, that this that is how you and I build individual lives. It's not just about how we build our own life because we know that our own life needs to be modeled after Jesus. The resurrected power of Christ lives in us so that we could live like Jesus in this world. So that's one half of that scenario. The other half of that scenario is building the lives of those people around us. So for this morning, little Elliot, how do we build his life up in the kingdom of God? How do we build the people who we've been entrusted with to go and share the gospel, bringing them into the knowledge of the kingdom? How do we build up the lives of our children, our parents, our, um, those who God has put us into influence with? The verse before 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9, verse 8 says this, The one who plants and the one who waters works together with the same purpose, and both will be rewarded for their own hard work. Within this passage of Scripture, you see there are two roles. Can you see the two roles in there? The one who plants and the one who waters. There's two roles. Often what happens in church life is we think there's only one role, and that is to lead people to Jesus. But the one who plants is the one who scatters the seed, is just as important as the one who harvests the seed. He's just as important or she's just as important as the one who puts the water on the seed. There are roles here that we must see. But ultimately, it is a role, it is these different roles that come together that we see and produce a harvest. Can you see that? That it's working together with the same purpose as it says there in that passage of Scripture. In verse 9, it goes on and it says that we are God's workers. You might remember this, that we are his field, that we are his building. This whole passage is really around the unity of seeing the kingdom of God advance together it's not about one person's thought and running with it it's about what god puts in the hearts of every one of us so that we can get behind the vision he has and see it become one it's about unity amen but look closely at the last sentence and both will be rewarded for their own hard work that means that we can't compare, doesn't it? We can't compare. The, the very thing that undermines unity is comparison. If you, if you are building something for an eternal purpose, if you compare what you do with someone else, then you're in, operating in a wrong spirit. You see, God's got a unique call for each of us. Like I said there, it says there, one plants, one waters. Another might have the joy of harvesting. Another might have the joy of, of putting the sheaves together and threshing it out and seeing the discipleship process. But they're all important. And we can't compare because that undermines this whole concept of unity. Look at John. John writes this. The harvesters are paid good wages. He says, thank God for that. Yeah. And the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter 
and the harvester alike. You know the saying, one plants and another harvests, and it's true. Who said that? Well, if you know your Bible, that's John chapter 4. That's Jesus saying it, isn't it? Isn't that an interesting concept? So one plants, another harvests. One plants, another waters. How then do you and I labor? Obviously, we're drawing this picture. Look at this passage of Scripture. How do we labor? Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. A pretty good warning, isn't it? Be honest in your evaluation of yourself. Does it say anywhere, be honest in your evaluation of another? No. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith that God has given us. This is speaking of honesty and integrity, isn't it? It's speaking about being authentic. In no way is it saying that you should be prideful in any of this. Amen? So verse 4 continues, Just as our bodies have many parts, and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. So we each as members have a special function, and we belong to each other. We know Paul uses this analogy, the hand can't say to the foot that it needs to do, you know, you know that analogy that the body, that we need to be one working in the direction and working for where it's going. It continues, this passage. It says this, In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. These gifts help us fulfill our specific calling both in the church and in the marketplace. That is what their intended purpose is for. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, Paul continues, speak out with as much faith as God has given you now. If, you, if your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, then give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do so gladly. Isn't that amazing? That's Romans chapter 12. And the whole passage was from 3 to 8. There's an example here. And, and I'll just use an example from my own life. I'm a bit of an encourager. That's I understand that God's called me to be an encourager, an exhorter, I'd be like. So, so what that means is I talk a lot. Okay, you can't stop that. That's God's gift in my life. I talk a lot, but He's also as part of my gift mix. I, I I've discovered over my life, and this is because I grew up on a farm, that I'm a bit of a jack of all trades. I can watch somebody and learn. Is that right? That's if you, if, if you ask me to do something, if I don't know how to do it, I'll go and watch someone and then I'll do it. It's the way I, I grew up. It's what I've done growing up in the church. I, I just see a need. I've got to do it. So I learn how to do it. All right. I even pulled my own car right apart three times and replaced head gaskets and things like that because I knew I could do it. I watched someone else do it and then I did it. It was hard, but I did it. 
might have taken me twice as long as a mechanic, but I did it. God's gifted me to do that. Not everyone can do that. Some people, um, you know, they can't put a nail into a piece of timber. Some people don't know what size spanner to put on a 10 mil nut. Okay, that doesn't make you make you wrong. It makes you different. Okay, does that make sense? So, so God's given me this gift to be a jack of all, but I know my limits. I, I'm not like this guy, right? Is that true? I'm not like this guy. I'm not a trained carpenter. I can put a nail into a piece of wood. I could cut timber and make it look okay, but I don't have the skill to make it look perfect like this. Look at that. Now, they, they look like some pretty awesome steps, and those down in the back row there know whose steps that they actually are. Look at the miters on there. You could jump on Kyle's Facebook, but look at the miters on there. Mine would have gaps everywhere, right? And then, and then look at that. Finished pro- job there. That looks amazing, and I know this, the screen's not giving you the greatest thing, but... To make a room look that brilliant, don't pay me to do it. Go and pay Kyle to do it. Does that make sense? But even though I can do it, I know my limits. And I know if I try and do something like that, that something that I'm called to do is actually going to go undone. That makes sense? That's the picture of the church. You have gifts that I don't have, and I have gifts that you don't have. And when we all do them together according to God's call on our life gets guess who gets the glory God amen understand so even though I embarrassed Kyle go and see in KM constructions and he might do a job for you eh? a bit of a plug for you. or maybe I should for the next 10 jobs I get a commission all right anyway it's only I'm only playing but <clears throat> no I am I'm only playing anyway so think about it you could do things, but are you necessarily called to do them? See, I can go and service my car, but I choose not to because I know if I spend three hours doing the service on my car, then it's three hours less productive I can be for what God's called me to do. So now I pay a mechanic and I honor him for what he's trained to do. Amen? It's the same concept. <clears throat> so when you look at verse 6, we'll go back to Kyle there. No, he won't. Keep moving. When you look at verse 6 of that passage, in his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. When we look at that passage, we understand that it's God's grace on our life to do certain things well. So what has God called you to do? What can you do well that others can't? For you, you might be an artist. I can't draw to save my life. You can create beautiful paintings or beautiful drawings that honor God, and God would receive glory for that. You might serve tables so much better than I ever could. And when you serve the tables, and you do so with kindness and love, the the, the image is when you go to Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 7, the church chose Stephen and Philip and five others to serve full of the Holy Spirit and grace, and guess what that did? It caused the church to grow again because people were filling the role that they were asked and called to do. Very quickly stepped over that, but you understand the difference there. We understand when we look at verse 6, it is God's grace and he has given us different gifts. 
So the word grace comes from the Greek word um, charis, okay? It is in one respect the unmerited favor of God. And the church has that down pat. We understand God's unmerited favor for our life. But it has another meaning. It has, has a greater, a deeper meaning for that for you and I. It also means God's empowerment in our lives to do what we could not normally do. Okay? You see that throughout the Old Testament. God's Holy Spirit came upon many people to do great works, arts, music, um, buildings, uh, all sorts of services within the temple. Uh, you see it throughout all of Scripture. God's Spirit came upon them. That was God's grace came upon them to serve Him well. Then, so we understand it's His empowerment to do so. Look at this passage of Scripture. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me, this is Paul, was not in vain. Look at that. And His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. So Paul's saying, I don't take credit for all of the work that I did. I don't take credit for the amount of mission trips I did. I don't take credit for the amount of floggings I received and stonings I got because it was the grace of God who empowered me to endure. It was the grace of God that saw me start all of these churches. It was all about Jesus. You hear that in what Paul is writing there. Yet when you take charis, the word, and you add an M-A, you get another word, and it's called charisma. Anyone heard that word before? Someone's got charisma. Okay? Charisma is actually the second part of that verse 6 in Romans chapter 12. Charisma is the gifts. And it's linked to this word grace, isn't it? Char- charisma, grace, gifts. So you and I have these charismas on our life. It is a gift for many from God, the word charisma. Bavir talks of his ability to write something. Um, He talks of when God asked him to write his first book, he laughed because he flunked English in high school, in college. He, he was hopeless. He couldn't string sentences together. So when God asked him to write a book, he laughed. And for months and months and months, he ignored the voice of God until two people within the space of a week gave him the exact same prophetic word into his life. They had no idea God had spoken to him about writing books. And they said, if you don't write what God has put into your heart, he will get someone else to do it. And then, this was the clincher for him, they both said these exact same words, and then you will be judged. So he wrote his first book. Since then, he's written 19 books. They've gone into millions of houses across the world. They've been translated into 90 different languages. His message that he believed God gives him to write, they kind of just flow out. And if you've read one of his books, you know that they're not the easiest of reads, but there's some powerful messages within them. And you've got to learn to take sometimes what God is saying in them and apply them to your life. And sometimes you say, oh, I don't necessarily agree with that, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Do you know what I mean? You've got to learn to do that when you read. So what am I saying? God had put a charisma on his life, a gift to write, and a message that was pertinent to the church and that has gone across the world. 
um, he actually writes, and, and this is not from an arrogant state, he actually says, I'm not the person who writes them, I'm the person who gets to read them first. Isn't that interesting? Because that's what the gift is about. That's what Paul's saying up here in this passage of Scripture, which is 1 Corinthians 15.10. It's by the grace of God in my life that I do what I do. Amen? So you and I have these grace gifts, these charismas in our life. you just got to look at my own life. And again, just a simple story. I used to be the shyest person that you would ever meet. I wouldn't say hello to anybody. I used to hide, try and get me to say a, say a speech at school. If they gave me a five-minute limit, it would be 30 seconds and I'd be out the door because I just didn't want to be. And, and what it was, it was a fear of man in my life. You understand? I had this fear that if I did something, I would be judged for it and I would be laughed at and ridiculed. And you know what fear does? It stops you in your tracks. It hinders you. It, it binds up the call of God on your life. And then God had to go through this amazing process for me to hear him. He put me into this place where I had to talk to people in a place called retail where I worked for 18 and a half years. I had to talk to people. I had to overcome my fear so that I could discover the grace gift in my life. And that's what I'm talking about here. Paul continues in, well, we know that Paul wrote in, in Romans chapter 12 and verse 6, we read that before, in his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. This is how we labor, okay? Romans 12 and 6. Peter writes this, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Look at the emphasis. The gift comes from God. They're not for you. They are to serve God's community, his church, those who we need to reach, the kingdom of God and its advancement. Use it to serve one another. Use them well, he says. So what keeps you and I from using our gifts can be summed up, as I already said, in this one word, Fear. What was on Paul's life was that he did not fear man. He feared God more. Remember we were talking about fear a couple of weeks ago? Where do we place our fear? Is it in man or is it in the fear of the Lord? Peter's the same. Peter was crucified upside down. We know he didn't fear man because he knew that standing before God was more important for him. It's the same concept. These passages in the last, about wrapping this section up about how do we labor, this passage, when you sum them up, Paul's not writing to leaders and deacons and oversights of churches. Paul is writing, and Peter are writing, to churches. It means that he's not writing to those who are called into ministry. He's writing to everyone. There is no clergy and no laity. There is no difference. We are just operating in different gifts for the same purpose. So if we labor from the position of grace in the grace gifts that we have each received, what then is our next encouragement? Our next encouragement comes to this, being good stewards. If you've received a gift, the next challenge, the next encouragement for you is what do you do with it? How do you put it into practice? And this all relates to how you manage the gift and the call of God in your life. Let me explain this quickly. 
best, crudest way I know. I own a chainsaw. It's a pretty crude way of explaining this, but I own a chainsaw. If I'm going to go away for a few months, if I give you my chainsaw, Barry, I give you my chainsaw, okay? You're excited. I've given you that to use it for whatever purpose you want to use it for. Is that right? Yeah? Now, I give it to Barry because I know he's going to look after it. If it breaks down, he's going to fix it. I'm probably going to give it to him broken because he's a mechanic. Anyway, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? But it's my chainsaw. If I come home and Barry's used my chainsaw to cut down every tree in my yard and burn them, do you think he's going to give an account to me? Absolutely he is. Because although I gave him the chainsaw to use it for whatever purpose he wanted, they're my trees. And it's my backyard. And if he went and cut them all down and I got no fruit next year, then you and I are going to have some serious words. He's going to have an account to keep. It's the same thing with God. God gives you gifts. They belong to him. But you've got to give an account of your stewardship for how you use it. Now, if Barry uses my chainsaw and goes and prunes my trees so that they produce wonderful fruit the next year, then he'll also receive an account. And I'll say to him, well done, Barry. I am so blessed to have you in my life. Thank you for making my trees produce better than I could have ever imagined. He gives that account, but he's used the chainsaw according to his stewardship on the life that he has. That's the same with your gifts. So don't go around cutting people's trees down. Go around and help people and prune their, their life in a way that they will produce fruit. Does that make sense? Because some of us attack the base of the tree with a chainsaw and that tree is dead. It can't come back. But God wants us to use our gifts well. It's a very simple way of saying, I own the chainsaw, God owns the gifts. As you give it to someone to use it, they've got to use it according to what God places in their heart. You have the free will to do with your gift what you want, whether you want to use it for your own purposes or for the purposes of the kingdom of God. But you will give an account for how you use your gifts. Does that make sense? We'll get to a really quick parable in a moment. But it all comes down to this one quick statement. 1 Corinthians 4 And verse 12, again, we're back in verse Corinthians. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. What makes a good steward? A faithful steward. So if you looked at the word faithful, and if I quickly did a a survey around the room and I asked you what faithful was, was, you'd give me different answers. John Bevere does this as he goes around the leadership groups. And these are the words that often come back to him when he asks the question, what's the definition of faithful? And, and some of these you might resonate with. Faithfulness is steadfast. Faithfulness is dependable. You're a faithful person. I can depend upon you. Um, loyal. Trustworthy. Faithful if you're trustworthy. Is that right? Yeah. Devoted. We looked at this at the start of the year. So you know that this is not necessarily right. Truthful. They're all wonderful character qualities. But it doesn't actually describe faithfulness the way Jesus describes faithfulness. The way Jesus describes faithfulness is in this one word. 
multiplication. It's about fruitfulness, isn't it? To show yourself faithful to God is not that you're loyal and you're dependable and you turn up on time and and, and you're trustworthy. They're all important qualities that need to be in your life because they're in Jesus' life. What is important is that you would multiply towards the kingdom's use. And this is what it is to be a good steward. There are different levels. There are different things that we need to understand and, and comprehend. And Jesus puts it into this context for us. Two different parables. There's a parable of the miners and there's a parable of the talents. And really quickly, we'll look at the parable of the talents to understand this concept. Is this okay? Because we're trying to understand how we labor and how what we labor for accounts to kingdom building. It counts to eternity. It counts towards your reward. Matthew 25 and verse 14 to 18, Jesus says this, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five more. So also, he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. All the servants, notice this, all the servants are given something. That relates to what I was saying before about each of us have been given a gift. Some have been given a five-talent gift. Some have been given a two-talent gift. Some may have been given a one-talent gift. But it doesn't matter how much you've been given. What matters is what you do with your gift. And this is the process of understanding and unpacking a parable. This parable is not actually about money. A parable is a life lesson. There's in this is the lesson that God, you can trade the word talent with the word gift, if you like, because that's the lesson. God has given you a gift and he expects a return from your gift. That means you and I, if we've all been given a gift, there's not one of us here today that has an excuse. We've all been given something. Amen? We've all been given a a gift of God in our life. And that's why we need the resurrected power of Jesus in our life to see them applied. Amen? Secondly, the gift and call on your life is according to your ability. The ability that God has placed in you. Amen? It's not, it's not according to your dreams and your desires. It's according to the ability of God in your life. And God fully knows your ability. Which means when we go back to last week, we're not going to be judged on what we've done whether we've preached to thousands, for example, if God's called us to raise three kids, you remember that analogy? If God's called us to raise three kids, then we're going to be judged according to raising three kids in the godly way. But if we've been called to preach to a nation and we're in a completely different nation, then we're not applying the gifts of God. Amen? And appropriating them. So do we judge our calling and gifting against another's? By no means. The man with the level one calling didn't value God's entrustment and buried it. Amen? Why did, the, why did he do so? Because he feared. He feared the retribution. You're a hard man. He feared 
that God was going to do something, or that this man that he was entrusted with a talent with was going to do something nasty if he'd lost that talent. So fear kept him to bury his gift. It continues. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. Listen to what his master said. Well done, good and faithful servant. There's that word faithful. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 22, and he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him the same words according to the ability upon his life. According to this, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. You have been faithful over little. I will set over you. I set you over much. Enjoy. Uh, enter into the joy of your master. He who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, listen to this. This is the excuse. I knew you to be a hard man. So he knew something that he was going to receive a judgment, but he attributed that it was going to be a harsh judgment. So he didn't quite know the man at all, did he? I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him. And give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will, will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Moving on. I think you get the gist. So how do you multiply your faithfulness? Firstly, through givings and partnerships. Secondly, by serving. And thirdly, through prayer. I've got a video to show you really quickly this. Because, like I said last week, John can say in two minutes what it takes me 30 to say. Giving and partnerships, serving and prayer. And have a watch of this video really quickly. Some sound, Angus. Thanks, mate. So how do we multiply? One of the first ways we can multiply, now, and this is not the top way, this is one of the ways, is through giving. Everybody say giving. Okay, I want, I want you to hear what Jesus said. Jesus said, use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your earthly possessions are gone, that's when we leave this earth, they, your friends that you've made with worldly resources, will welcome you into their eternal home. In other words, he's saying, use your worldly resources Convert them into kingdom purposes. Because when you convert the worldly resources into kingdom purposes, now you've just caused your resources to last forever and ever. Because if you look at 2 Corinthians 9, 9, it says he has dispersed abroad, he's given, put his 
resources into the kingdom. He has given to the poor. And remember, it's not just the financially poor. The poor are those who are desperate for God. His righteousness endures forever. So in other words, by transferring his finances into the kingdom and benefiting others' lives, what he's done will endure forever. So if you just look at a typical business person, all right, they work hard, they earn money, they say, we're going to keep all this money, and I'm going to benefit my kids, I'm going to benefit my wife. You know, I'll, t- I'll tell you a story, true story. Um, everybody knows I like golf, okay, it's just out there. So <laughs> one of our partners, uh, he knew I was speaking at the Dream Center in L.A., and he said, John, you're going to be real close to Riviera. Would you like to play? I said, oh, my gosh, yes. So I go out and play Riviera. It was a great day. I'm not going to tell you my score and all that, but it was a great day. Well, yeah, I was three over after four holes, and I ended up with 70. So anyway, uh, you can figure that one out if you know how to play golf. So anyway, um, we were driving back to the hotel, and he said, John, can I ask you a question? He said, you know, I'm just about to turn 50, I've, and this is his language. He said, I busted my butt. I built my businesses up to $9 million. My wife's cared for. My children are cared for. Why should I bust my butt in my 50s and build my businesses to $35 million? I said, good question, but let me answer it with this. Suppose I said to you, I've written enough books. My wife and children are cared for. I'm in my 50s. Why should I bust my butt and write any more books or travel and get on planes and preach to anybody else? He looked at me and he said, that's horrible. I wouldn't want to be you when you stand before Jesus. I said, you just said the exact same thing. The problem is you have a disconnect with your with your calling, you see my calling as a direct calling. You see a disconnect with yours. You haven't realized that God has put you in the marketplace, not only to be a bright, shining light in the marketplace, but to get resources so that we can keep getting this gospel out. He was like, whoa. Well, I called him six months later. His name's Scott. I said, Scott, how are you doing? He said, I've been haunted every day for the last six months by what you said to me. I said, well, what are you doing? He said, I'm busting my butt to build my businesses to $35 because I want to give more in the kingdom. So see, that's what we're trying to say. Every one of you are called to build God's custom home. Another way that we can, and, and you know, and I talk about this in the book as far as giving, but, oh, huge is partnership. You know, Paul says when you give to a ministry, you become a partner. All of the partners of Messenger International, every single partner, that has given to us to help us to reach the people all over the world. Every soul we reach, they're going to get credit for. How do I know that? Because David said, those that stay back and guard the equipment are rewarded equally as those that went out in the field. You become literally a part of the team. I'm looking at team members sitting here right now. They've been financial partners with us for years, some of you. You literally will get credit for every soul that Lisa and I have touched and the rest of Messenger International team touches. That's big, and that's in Philippians chapter 4, but we'll show you that in another time. You can read that in the book. Second way you can multiply is through serving. Everybody say serving. You know, um, one of my board members, one of my board members is um, in his church. Uh, Governor Huckabee is in his church, okay? Can I tell you, Governor Huckabee works in the parking lot. Did you hear what I just said? He directs traffic into the parking lot because he realizes I'm called to serve. When I first started going to the church, he was working in the cafeteria. So he went from the cafeteria to the parking lot. Now, don't get me wrong. He's called into the political arena of the United States. But he realizes I'm also called to serve my local church. I'm also called to serve. So here he is being a really bright light all over the nation, but he also understands how important it is to serve. Are you seeing this? You know, I fully believe, and I said this earlier, that people who serve in ministry 
they get rewarded for every soul that's touched. And I'll never forget a great, great minister today. He was serving, actually, Oral Roberts way, way back in the day when Oral Roberts was doing the big, big meetings. And he just happened to be, you know, serving in a capacity on the team. And, and one night he was standing behind the curtain. He thought, I can do this. I could stand up and preach to these people. And the Holy Spirit spoke to him, and he said, if you were out there right now preaching to those people, you wouldn't get credit for one, one soul. He said, but because you're doing what I told you to do, and you're standing here, and you're, you're doing what you're doing on this team, every single person that gets one to me tonight, you will get eternal credit. That's how important serving is. Are you with me? Can I tell you, it's really important that we as a church serve, because I'm going to tell you, tell you something. If you look at Peter, he's doing all the preaching. The apostles are doing all the work in the first five chapters of the book of Acts. But then you know what happens? We find out the believers start realizing, hey, we're supposed to preach too. Because it says in every house they preached. Then you go to the very next chapter, chapter 6. And they started appointing guys to serve widows with food. One of them was Philip, one of them was Stephen. You know what the Bible says? After they laid hands on them and appointed them to serve food to widows. Because the apostles said, we've got to give ourselves to the word of God and prayer. The Bible says the number of the disciples in those days began to greatly multiply. Let me tell you something. If I won 10,000 people to the Lord every single month, and I did that continuously, it would take me 50,000 years to win everybody on earth, provided in that 50,000 years nobody died and nobody was born. But if you have two people, and they each win two people, you get four people, and those, each of those four people win two more people, and it keeps going, it takes 3.6 years. First one's called addition. Second one's called great multiplication. That's what happens when we get in our places of serving. And God, I believe, put that in the book of Acts on purpose so that we would see how important your position is in serving. Nobody sees you. In fact, the Bible says the parts of the body that are not seen are more valuable than the parts that are seen. Why do we put a premium on the pulpit? Why? Why do we put a premium on the platform? That's a seen part. Do you realize that God said the parts to get more honor, more value, are the parts that are not seen? So we really have to have our minds renewed to that. The third way that we can multiply is through prayer. We have prayer partners at Messenger International that pray. Let me tell you something. That is so valuable to me. When I look at my team and I say, hey, I'm going somewhere. I need you guys to pray. You don't know the comfort, the peace that comes to me knowing that because these guys know how to pray and our team members. I love it when, when somebody comes up to me and says, I pray for you every day. Now, there are some times they go kind of superficially, and then there's times where I go, I believe you. And they are some of my most valuable, treasured people in my life. Because, let me tell you something, you can have all the money in the world, but if you don't have that prayer, forget it. Praise the Lord. I need to wrap this up. It's a whole series. How do you wrap it up in two minutes? Um, The last point, really, is this building individual lives. I said that we'd touch on this really quickly. When you choose to walk with Jesus, you grow. As you learn of him, you become an influencer. Your life influences other people. David's influence was amazing when you look at him hiding in a cave. And was it 400 men, the motley crew of Israel? When you saw them come together, the riffraff of his day, when David walked with God, He influenced the lives of these men and they become his most trusted warriors. As Jesus influences our lives, we are privileged with the same grace to influence others. 
There's one point about multiplication, multiplication in the kingdom, showing fruitfulness, showing faithfulness and all that sort of stuff. The other side of that is your influence upon others. God graces you to influence other people. And like I said before, the gift that you have, you could either use it to influence people for your good or for the good of the kingdom. You can either shoot people down and cut them down with your words, or you can use the truth to build people up and see them influenced into and for the kingdom of God. And we will, we will be called and before God are based upon what we say and how we say it and what we do with the gifts God has called us to do and how we influence the lives of other people. How do you view other people? Do you view them through the lens of negativity? Do you view them through the lens of the fact that they might be an inconvenience to your life? Do you view them just as someone who's going to be able to pay money and, and, and help you in your business or whatever it is you're called to do? Or do you view them the way God views them? And this is the challenge. If you're struggling to view people the way God does, then humble yourself before him. Repent of your hard heart and ask God, God to give you the grace to see them through his eyes because when you see their brokenness or when you see what God is doing in their life or when you see the gift of God in their life then you can partner with them and call out in them that which God has placed in their life you and I are called to influence the lives around us are we influencing for the positive or for the negative if you have to have a hard conversation with someone do you do it in the open and cut them down? Or do you take them away and have a private word with them and bring correction? Because I tell you, if you cut them down, you'll be judged upon how God sees your influence in their life. How do you treat the wait staff in a restaurant? Do you expect them just to take the plates and don't even give them a greeting? Do you say thank you? How, how do you treat... Um, the person in the supermarket who's checking your groceries through? How, how do you treat them? Do you treat them with a smile and with the love of God on your life so that you can influence their day? Because the mundaneness of their life at the moment is putting cans through a scanner and you can put a smile in their life and change their day and influence them. Those we work with and attend church with how are you influencing their life this is really important to god love is the influence amen and remember how we influence others and build their lives in accordance with our calling and gifting you'll be accountable for what you're called to do you're not accountable to be the fun police does that make sense so this second video here is a real quick one, and it'll hopefully wrap us up. About my friend Mike, I met him at Rockwell International. I was an engineer; he was one of their accountants, and uh, we became very close friends. And Mike was doing taxes on the side, and he used to do my taxes for free, and we just became really close. And then one day he left Rockwell, and I left Rockwell, and I went to ministry. He went and started his own accounting firm. Since then, his accounting firm has, uh, I think, last I heard, 12,000 clients. And I called Mike and I said, Mike, how many of those clients have you ministered the Word of God to? Oh, he said, John, easily 90%. I said, so you're saying you've ministered the Word of God to over 10,000 clients? He said, oh, absolutely. I said, you know, there's a lot of pastors that haven't done that. 
I said, how many of you led to the Lord? He said, oh, hundreds. And I remember we were on the phone. He said, just last week, a, a Cuban man came in, and I got, he got totally healed of cancer. He went back to the doctor. We just prayed while we were doing his taxes. Well, Mike used to always talk to me about this guy named Charlie who had the biggest impact on his life. So I called Mike, and I said, Mike, you always talked about Charlie. In fact, his daughter wrote a paper about the greatest man I never met named Charlie. And I said, Mike, tell me about this guy named Charlie. And Mike started weeping on the phone. I mean, really, really sobbing. And he said, John, six out of my nine aunts and uncles went into insane asylums. He said, my mother ended up in an insane asylum. He said, both my grandfathers were shot by other men. He said, that was my destiny. But he said, my mom couldn't afford me because we were so troubled. So she brought me to a family of a paper mill, man, uh, paper mill janitor. And that man's name was Charlie. And Charlie, for seven years, taught Mike about Jesus, brought him to church every Sunday, and just kept training him in the ways of God. He was a little Baptist janitor for this paper mill. Mike's weeping on the phone telling me about how he, I would have been in the same slime. I would have been shot. But because of what God did through Charlie, look at my life. So I started thinking, wow, wait a minute. Charlie's impact, look what it had on Mike. Mike's impact on 10,000 clients that he's ministered the word of God to. But then Mike's impact on my life, which it was profound. How many millions of people have, has God allowed me to touch? So you understand how many millions of people paper mill, paper mill janitor Charlie has impacted? That's why personal influence is so important. It does, doesn't it? It helps us understand. I'm going to conclude this morning and then Angus will come and just share really quickly around communion and close our service off. I'm going to conclude with this reading out of this book about the personal influence or the influence to your legacy. It's an interesting story, one that has credit and is verified, so just give me time to read this to you. This reminds me of a true account that one of my employees read to me recently. It is about an atheist named Max Jukes and a godly man named Jonathan Edwards. Here's the story. Max Jukes, the atheist, lived a godless life. He married an ungodly girl, and from the union, there were 310 who died as paupers, 150 were criminals, 7 were murderers, 100 were drunkards, and more than half of the women were prostitutes. His 540 descendants cost the state one and a quarter million dollars. This is 1750 or something like that. So this is a long time ago. That's a lot of money. But praise the Lord, it works both ways, this influence. There is a record of a great American man of God, Jonathan Edwards. He lived at the same time as Max Jukes, but he married a godly woman. An investigation was made of the 1,394 known descendants of Jonathan Edwards, of which 13 became college presidents, 65 college professors, three United States senators, three, uh, 30 judges, 100 lawyers, 60 physicians, 75 army and navy officers, 100 preachers and missionaries, 60 authors of prominence, one a vice president of the United States, 
80 became public officers or officials in other capacities, 295 college graduates, among whom were governors of states and ministers to foreign countries. His descendants did not cost the state a single penny. That is yet another case of multiplying minors. These men, Charlie in the story, Mike in the story of the video there, and Jonathan Edwards have affected so great a number of lives, their influence led to great legacies. Yet it wasn't their public ministry that impacted these multitudes we speak of. It was their personal lives. This is the privilege God gives every one of us. How you respond to a police officer, the way you speak of your pastor, how you treat your children, the manner in which you conduct your financial affairs, the words you use to speak to individuals, and the list continues, these all affect the lives of others around you. Will you be a builder or a stumbling block? Romans 14.12 says this, continues, Yes, each of us will have to give a personal account to God. So don't condemn each other anymore. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not put an obstacle in each in another Christian's path. Let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. That's Romans 14, 12, 13 and verse 19. The most important influence, the most important influence that we could have on another's life is to lead them to Christ. If you want to learn how to change someone's destiny, you have to learn how to be intimate with God. Hear his heart. Hear his cry for these people. Get into the word and then get into their faces and share the love of God with them. And you'll be an influencer yourself. I'm going to ask you to come, Angus, and just share communion really quickly. And then instead of going out with a song today, as Angus concludes to pray, I'm going to ask Joanne to put up the PowerPoint again at the end. There's a last video to take us out for this series. So thanks, Angus. How are we going, guys? I'm good, thanks. Now, um, I had a bit of an idea on what I really wanted to, to discuss today, but I wanted to really glean some stuff off Steve as well because I knew today was going to be really, really powerful. So I want to bring communion out in a little bit of a, a different light today. Um, as Pretty much as far as, as I've ever been in church, we've always had very somber communions and there's nothing wrong with that you know it's very important to understand that god went um you know through a lot jesus you know went through a, a horrific death in order to bring us what he did but what i want to do is i want to focus a little bit less on the death and more on three days later during the baby dedication today where's elliot he's so cute he's fast asleep during the baby dedication steve said that the greatest gift is the gift of which means that when Jesus came back to life, when he overcame death, what he actually did was he gave us the greatest gift ever. And that is the gift of eternal life. 
leaving us with only one thing we have to do, and that is just accept it. It's an amazing, amazing opportunity. I remember a couple of years ago, a friend of mine back in Melbourne, um, he, he got given a Mustang as a gift, a 68 Fastback. Anyone who knows cars is like kind of drooling at the moment, but it was beautiful. And I remember thinking, I was like, oh man, that would be so exciting if I got that gift. That would be like the best thing ever. But how much greater is salvation? How much greater is the free gift of eternal life? I spent years uh, salivating over this car, like so excited about this car. And I was like, man, what if I was so excited about salvation in the same way I was excited about that car? What if everyone in this room, everyone in Griffith, was excited about salvation in the same way that I was excited about that Mustang? So reading quickly from First uh, Peter um, chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, it said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again with a, a, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefilable, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Imperishable, undefilable, and unfading. Anyone who's been in the car accident knows that those cars are none of those three. I've been in a couple of accidents, and I learned that the hard way. But the gift of salvation, the gift of eternal life, I'm just going to go through it again. Imperishable, undefilable, and unfading. And the only things that we can experience in this life that are all three of those things come only from God. Now, God's given us the greatest gift of all. And what's interesting about that is that if we have that gift, if we have eternal life, then we actually have something that other people don't. Now, if I were to say there was a government rebate right now for every single person who wanted it, um, you know, for a million dollars, I reckon every single person on here would be on social media, would be telling their friends, man, make sure you get this because this is really cool. You don't get the opportunity to get a million dollars every now and then. That's exactly the same with salvation. It's an amazing gift. It's open for anyone. Like, I look in this room right now and you know, there's well over 150 people. I see a room full of Charlies who have mics in their life that need them. I see a room full of influencers, a room full of people who can bring that gospel to people, who can use the gift that God has given us and bring that to the world. Steve said during his uh, sermon, if we can get our minds around eternity, we can start calling others into it. Wrapping our minds around eternity begins with the resurrection. Because without it, there is no eternity. We've been given the gift of life. I think it's time for us to start being faithful with it. I think it's time for us to start multiplying it. Jamie there in the front row is a, a very, very gifted evangelist. But I reckon if every single person here brought one person to Christ in a month, it would put 
it's Jamie's full-time evangelism to shame because all of us would be doing it. Jamie's good, but he's not as good as 200 people doing it. So as I get the ushers to, to bring out the, uh, the bread and the, the juice today, I want us to think less about the death. I want us to think about the gift. As we um, eat of the bread and as we drink of the juice, I want us to remember that we are actually free in that. There is a symbolism of freedom in our life. It is a gift of eternal life. With that comes celebration. But with that also comes responsibility. We have it. Who in our life doesn't? So what are you getting the elements there? I just want you to think of people in your life that you can reach out to this week. People in your life that do not have what we have. I want you to think of how this week you can be a Charlie. So just while everything's being handed out, I'd just like to pray. God, we thank you for the the amazing gift that is your resurrection, Father, that is your eternal life, that is your love. We pray, Father, we thank you that is imperishable, undefilable, and unfading, God. And we give you all the praise and the glory for that. Father, I pray that you will make us uncomfortable in our lives at the moment that we will not settle for what we've got at the moment but we will be compelled to go out there and reach people to bring this amazing gift that you have given us and bring it into other people's lives Father because this amazing gift is worthless to others if we don't bring it to them Give us confidence that only you can bring us, Father. Remind us that anything that comes against us, while we go out and speak your word, you went through for worse. You went through worse just to give us the opportunity to do it. Let us be reminded of that every time we feel that that tug of the Holy Spirit to talk to someone. Bless us in our walks, Father. Bless us, bless us as we go out and speak to people. That we will make an impact. Thank you, God. Amen. I think I pre-ordered mine. All right. I'd just like everyone to just hold up your bread for a minute. Now, when Jesus was in the Last Supper, he told everyone that this was his flesh, broken for us. Now, it was broken for us so that we may have eternal life. But it was broken for others that they may have eternal life as well. So let's not just remember the sacrifice that God made. Let's remember the reason why he made it. Let's eat together.
On the same night, he took the wine, or the grape juice, and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. It was poured out for you, and it was poured out for you, and it was poured out for you. Pastor Steve at the back, it was poured out for you. The person who decided not to come to church today, it was poured out for them as well. So let's remember that while we go about our week, every single person that we come by, whether we see them at church, whether we see them at school, or whether we see them on the news convicted for murder, God died for them. Jesus went through horrific death for them, that they may be reached. Let's drink together. The Great Commission calls for souls to be one, but it never says just for pastors to do it. Every single one of us is called into evangelism. We may have specific gifts, absolutely, but every single one of us is called to win souls. for this final session. First of all, you are called to make a significant difference in this life. God has given you gifts. You have the choice of using those gifts however you want. You can use them to build the kingdom or you can use them to build your own personal life. One, it will be burned up. The other, you will be rewarded eternally. As far as your personal influence goes, remember, people are valuable. You can try to treat people nice. That will last a few weeks. You have to value men, women, and children in your heart and pray. Here's your action step. Pray that God would give you the value that he has for people. Remember, he died for those people. That God would give you that value, that honor in your heart towards others that he has for them. So I want to pray for you here at the conclusion of Driven by Eternity. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for my brothers and sisters that are watching right now. We're together. We're coming to your throne room, Heavenly Father. I'm asking that, Lord, their life would be established, firmly established on the eternal word of God. I pray that, Lord, you would empower them to be obedient to you. Father, I remind you of your covenant promise that you are working in us both to will and to do of your good pleasure. So I ask that you would do this with my brothers and sisters and I pray that they would receive the full reward, not the partial. So I speak in the name of Jesus. I speak the strength to obey. I speak purpose and I speak the love and the holy fear of God to burn in your heart. I pray that the presence of the living God would come upon you right now and just as the spirit of the living God empowered Jesus to fulfill his destiny I pray that he would empower you to fulfill your destiny on this earth in Jesus name we pray amen. I love you so much And it's been an honor to share with you, driven by eternity.